Welcome to Inspired by Faith, the program of the Columbus Catholic Women's Conference. This is a show to help you be inspired by our Catholic faith, live out the gospel message, and deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm Michelle Fanley, and I'm joined each program in the studio with my friend, Emily Jaminette. We hope this show provides an uplifting 30 minutes to refresh your soul and strengthen your faith. As it was born out of our friendship, we hope it encourages you to deepen and develop spiritual friendships with your sisters in Christ. Well, good morning, Emily. How are you? I'm doing so great. Great day. Beautiful day. God is good. Yes. And we are excited to continue our podcast today with a fabulous priest guest who um, wrote an incredible new book that is award-winning, Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church. So we have an important topic to discuss. And I think I know as Emily and I, we were born in the 70s. We did not live through um, the immediate changes of Vatican II. We're post-Vatican II Catholics. So this was something that um, when I started studying this book with my parish, I really knew very little about. So I can say that if you told me in June I'd be studying the documents of Vatican II this summer, I would have have told you you are crazy. But it has been incredible um, knowledge knowledge base, but also just spiritually to understand what our church has gone through. And um, we are so blessed to have this introduction by Father Blake Britton. Well, I love the idea of reclaiming Vatican II because Father's going to share with us how, you know, a lot of times everyone loves to hear what they think they hear, what they, might be true, but let's get down to the facts and understand what's what's the real essential message. Absolutely. So Father Blake Britton is a priest and theologian from the Diocese of Orlando, Florida. His writings are featured in multiple anthologies and publications, including Evangelization and Culture Journal, the National Catholic Register, Ignatius Press, and Ave Maria Press. He is the author of the award-winning book, Reclaiming Vatican II, What It Really Said, What It Means, and How It Calls Us to Renew the Church. In addition to writing, Father Blake has been featured in an EWTN documentary, co-hosts the landmark YouTube series God and Gaming, and regularly appears on other media outlets. Finally, he's the co-host of with Mr. Brandon Vogt of the Borough Shire podcast, focusing on millennial evangelization and theology. So welcome, Father Blake. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. <laughs> we are so honored that you took time out of your busy schedule to be with us. So thank you for joining us today. It's an absolute privilege, and I'm happy to be with you. Well, we just wanted to hear a little bit about your journey, your faith journey, your life, you know, how maybe you even ended up um, being called to the priesthood, how you responded to that. Oh, my goodness. Wonderful <laughs> question. One of my favorite things to talk about, <laughs> because... It's so funny. Nowadays, everyone's like, Vatican II, Vatican II. So it's nice every once in a while just to say, wait, what about my discipleship of Jesus? You know, Uh (laughs) let's talk about that. So, um, yeah, I was born and raised um, in a very devout Catholic family on my mother's behalf. Now, my father was actually an atheist my first several years of life. Now, what I would call a virtuous pagan, you know, he was not antithetical to the Church of Christianity. Um, He most certainly supported my mother's faith. My mother was actually discerning to become a Dominican sister and discerned out of religious life, met my father, and here I am. Uh, my father did convert to Catholicism. He's an incredibly holy man of the Church now. Um, he, he also travels and speaks at different men's conferences and things of that sort. My mother is a theologian. She has her degree in theology from Steubenville University. Um, so I give that background just because I think it gives a, sort of what was the soil that nurtured the seed of my vocation. I first uh, said I wanted to be a priest when I was five years old, so I was quite young. I was raised around priests and nuns my entire life. They used to come over to our house, many of my mother's friends who were sisters, Dominican sisters, 
as well as, of course, the uh, Servite the Mary, which were a religious order that took care of us. I'm a Puerto Rican origin. My mother's Hispanic. My father's um, a Marine Corps veteran and American. Uh, and so I mainly grew up going to Mass in Spanish, actually, at a mission parish founded in Kissimmee, Florida. And it's there that I first met really incredibly holy priests. Uh, they inspired me to the priesthood, to serve and love God's people. Uh, I did pretty definitively know I was called to the priesthood by the age of 12 years old. Uh, and I did apply for the seminary right out of high school, went in. I had a, a wonderful time in seminary, and I've been ordained now uh, for five years. Uh, it's an absolute blessing. And I've been able to serve and to love God's people in that manner. Uh, so I've served at many parishes and schools. And in addition to that, the Lord's allowed me the privilege of, of writing and speaking and traveling as well. So it, it's just been an incredible, incredible journey. And I'm very grateful for my vocation. Wow. As two sisters of priests, we absolutely are honored with what you just shared, because um, I think a lot of times we think Catholic families have to be, you know, two Catholic parents and this and that. But you you really... Um, shared a, a powerful story about the the soil that nurtured your faith. And we're both Franciscan yeah. University graduates, Emily and I. So yeah. we love that to hear that your mom is as well. What a oh, what a gift. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, you tell her we said hi. Yes, fellow, I will. fellow I will. Franciscan friends. So well, your latest book is absolutely amazing. I was, sh- I was sharing earlier that our parish decided it to be our book club this summer. And um, it is titled Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church. So why did you choose to write on this topic and why now in 2022? Wonderful question. Uh, It really began when I myself started reading the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Now, I think that something important for us to, to understand, especially those of us who were born in what we call the millennial and Gen Z uh, generations, so those roughly the 80s up through the 2000s, we approach the Second Vatican Council, and I would say also people who are born in the 70s have a similar spirituality. We approach the Second Vatican Council with not really as much baggage, maybe, as other people, because they recognize the Church between the pre-conciliar, the quote, and the post-conciliar Church. So some people, you know, um, when they read Vatican II, when they hear about Vatican II, rather, they're interpreting it through the lens of comparing what the Church was before Vatican II and what it was after. For those of us who grew up in a post-conciliar Church, we don't have anything to compare it to. So I found that we approached the Second Vatican Council with, a, with almost a real freedom, if you will, um, especially when we just look at it at face value. So I started reading through the documents of Vatican II, and I was blown away by what I read. It really was superb. Uh, it brilliantly lucid, incredibly theological, very historical, especially with patristics, which means the writings of the Church Fathers, and I was quite inspired by it. That being said, as I continued reading the documents, seeing what the Council called for, specifically Sacrosanctum Concilium and Lumen Gentium, and then comparing that to my common experience at the parochial level or the diocesan level, I started recognizing a disconnect between what I heard regularly promoted in the quote-unquote spirit of Vatican II, and what I saw in the actual writings and documentation of the Council. In addition to that, I also was introduced to a trend which is called traditionalism. So to be traditional is not a bad thing. We are a traditional faith, we're a church of tradition. But traditionalism is this sort of negation, if you will, of anything uh, after the Council of Trent or anything that has to do with the Second Vatican Council more specifically. Uh, and so I started hearing from traditionalists and commentators 
a very uh, antithetical spirit to Vatican II. They, they were saying that it really was a tragedy in the Church. They wanted to pretty much delete it, pretend it like it never happened, um, that there was a lot of fallout, and they started giving the reasons why, that it desecrated the liturgy, um, that it got rid of good catechesis, that it wasn't traditional enough. And as I start hearing those accusations, coupled with my local experience of the quote-unquote spirit of Vatican II, and then compare that to the actual data and information I received from the Council itself, I realized that there was no confluence, that there was a, that there was a serious gap in between these three avenues. So that began redirecting my study and my focus to really ask the question, how did this happen? How did something so beautiful and so obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit as an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, and the largest ecumenical council in Church history with over 2,500 bishops, the majority of which documents were approved by a vast majority. To give an illustration, the first document of the Second Vatican Council, Sacrum Sancti Concilium, which some people would say is the most controversial aspect of Vatican II, the liturgy, that was approved by a super majority of bishops. You had less than several groups of bishops vote against it. Over 2,000 bishops voted for that document in favor. So that gives you sort of an illustration that there was a trend with the Church, even among those bishops, such as Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, who voted in favor of the reform of the liturgy. He became the founder, eventually, of St. Pius the X Society. You see this desire and this uh, really u- uh, unity, if you will, for reform, but then I'm hearing these kind of criticisms off to the side. So my question was, what happened? How did this take place? And then my second question became, especially as a priest, what can we do to recultivate and to return to the intention of the Church? And as I started studying, speaking, interacting with the faithful in regards to this particular topic, I found that there's a healing balm within the teachings and theology of the Second Vatican Council that the Spirit's given us for the third millennium. And it's very important for us to go back to this original documentation and to reopen the conversation about Vatican II. We're treating it like it's closed as if everything's over, and then there's a right side and a left side. And that's not the case when it comes to Catholicism. It's always an open dialogue. It's always dynamic because the Church is living. So that's really what inspired the project, and the Lord has blessed that, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and, it, and it's starting a conversation throughout the Church, I think, to, to re-encounter the beauty and the profundity of the Second Vatican Council. Well, I think, too, some of us um, as laity, we have no idea, well, really anything. Why does the Church have these councils? You know, right. how often are they? What are, what are the purpose of them? So maybe could you give us a little background on why Vatican II was even called? Of course, absolutely. So Vatican II is what we call an ecumenical council. There's only about 20 of those in 2,000 years' worth of history. So that lets you know how significant of an event it is. This is not something that happens once every couple of years. And the last time we had an ecumenical council of this magnitude and significance was 500 years ago, the Council of Trent, which took place in the 16th century. So ecumenical councils, by default, are big deals. They're they're pivotal moments in Church history. Typically, ecumenical councils are called for one of two reasons, to address doctrinal issues or to address pastoral issues, or simultaneously both. So, for example, if you look at something like the Council of Nicaea, it was summoned because there was a discrepancy or a confusion within the Church about the nature of Christ, Is he fully human? Is he fully divine? The nature of the Church, the teaching of the Church, out of these councils eventually come the creeds and the confirmation of the creeds, the canon of scriptures. You know, what do we believe, what do we understand about the living person of Jesus? The Council of Chalcedon and Ephesus are the same. That's where we get the theology of Mary, the mother of God, or Jesus is fully human, fully divine. 
So there's an example of a doctrinal focus, if you will, uh, from councils. The Council of Trent was a mixture of both. It was doctrinal and pastoral. The doctrinal concern was clarifying the essential teachings of Catholicism vis-a-vis Protestantism, while at the same time really addressing the Protestant heresy and helping people understand as pastors of the Church what is our role to care for God's people amidst the spreading of this heresy throughout Europe and the divisions that are coming there for it. The Second Vatican Council was also addressed for both reasons, doctrinal as well as pastoral. Doctrinal insofar as redefining and clarifying the teachings of the Church, especially on the nature of the liturgy, the nature of the Church herself, Mariology, which becomes Chapter 8 of Lumen Gentium, and finally, what is the unique character of the Church in a post-Christian, militarily atheistic society that's been influenced by materialism, socialism, and communism? These are the great questions of the Church in the post-World War II period. Along with that is the pastoral concern. We are now living in the first generation of human beings in history who have been raised in a post-Christian, irreligious society. So even the pagans before Christ had religiosity. But now we're living in, for the first time ever, in all the planet Earth's history, in the 25,000-year history of humanity, we have an unreligious people. Now, what does that look like? How do you address that topic? That's an immediate pastoral concern when you have children that don't even know what the story of Noah and the Ark is. They don't even know the name of Jesus. And it's done intentionally by an institution. So what can we do to address that specific issue and tragedy? And that becomes the writings of Gaudium et Spes in the relationship between the Church and the world. So these are the two avenues as far as an ecumenical council is either doctrinal, pastoral, or both. And in the case of Vatican II, it was both addressing those two major topics. Father, you know, you wrote about the misunderstandings of the council. You know, how did that, how did this come about? How did we get to this point? Because what you just shared, I mean, is so important and so logical and makes so much sense. So how, how what's this breakdown? What happened? Yeah. yeah, that really constitutes the major thesis of my work, if you will. Uh, in this notion of reclaiming Vatican II. So uh, during the actual council itself, there were a number of theologians, a number of thinkers, uh, commentators who were invited to participate. It truly was an ecumenical council. Uh, so not only the 2,500 bishops, uh, therefore, but also uh, many other theologians, especially this group of theologians called Pediti in Latin, which basically just means they were consultants to the bishops. Within the actual sessions themselves, there were many theologians who disagreed with Vatican II, who thought it was not radical enough, that it did not uh, push the changes it should have. So one example would be someone like Edward Skilobetz or Hans Kuhn, for example. And they, in the post-conciliar period, so after the closing sessions of Vatican II, they take advantage of the implementation phase, which is usually the first decade to 25 years after the Council. They took advantage of that implementation phase, not to really teach what Vatican II said, but rather to promote their own theological ideology that was actually renounced in large part by the Council. So there are many things the Council did to clarify the essence of the Church and her nature, especially using something called patristics, which are the early writings of the Church rediscovered in the 18 and 1900s. But that being said, there were also a lot of New Agey kind of ideas that people like Hans Kuhn or people like Edward Skilobek would have liked to have seen addressed. And the Second Vatican Council said, no, this is inappropriate, first of all, to the nature of our council, the bishops did, 
But also, secondly, some of the things that were being suggested were inherently against the logic of Catholicism. They were against the, the true nature of the Church and her fundamental teachings and tradition. That word tradition is referred to over and over again in Vatican II. It's very important to measure up these reflections of the Church against the original deposit of faith. So these theologians disappointed by the fact that Vatican II did not go the direction they hoped it would, used the implementation period to go and to promote not what Vatican II taught, but their own theological and ideological opinions, but in the name of Vatican II. So that meant that a lot of their personal ideologies became conflated with the Second Vatican Council. Now, how did they justify this? By coining a phrase, and that phrase became the spirit of Vatican II. And if you note something that's called the spirit of Vatican II, the same thing is true, for example, in American law. We could say, well, this is in the spirit of the Constitution of the United States, as opposed to, well, what does the Constitution actually say? It's the same thing in the Church. Well, this is in the spirit of Sacrosanctum Chilium. Okay, well, what did the document actually say? And why is it that what you're doing in the spirit of the document is absolutely against an explicit declaration of the document? So we can't claim that it's in the spirit, but that phraseology allows now wiggle room for people to start inserting their personal preferences as opposed to discerning with the Church, with the magisterium, how to implement these things. That was then also picked up by the media. Remember that the Second Vatican Council was the first council to be covered by mass media, specifically American mass media. And what does American mass media do? It politicizes everything. That's not necessarily a criticism. We're a very political country. We're founded on that with our forefathers. But politicization is never appropriate to the Church, because the Church is not a political institution. So this putting on of phraseology such as liberal and conservative, of labeling people as progressive or traditional, that was something done by media. Those are not Catholic terms. We would never define ourselves as liberal or conservative. Those are political terms, not Catholic terms. In Catholicism, we say orthodox or unorthodox. That's our phraseology. Is this according to the Church, or is it not according to the tradition of the Church? Well, the media influences that as well. They become the mouthpieces of, of a lot of these paraconciliar, as I call them, theologians, who represent um, sort of a caricature of the Council as opposed to the Council itself. And then the final thing was the spirit of the age, and I delineate, delineate this much more in my book a lot more clearly. But uh, the Council of the Age, the fact that Vatican II happened in the 60s and 70s, which both of you could testify better than myself, was most certainly w among the most uh, turbulent times in not just American history, but world history. We had the assassination of Kennedy, we had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the space race, the Cold War, the Vietnam War. Things are happening around the world, and there's this spirit of sort of revolution, if you will. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll became sort of the phraseology from Woodstock, right? So as people receive now this paraconciliar ideological version, narrative about the Council, not based on the documents themselves, based upon these opinions, they receive it with open arms because they're thinking, finally, the Church is catching up with the times. We're getting rid of that old Church and getting this new Church. Uh, you even get songs like, Sing a New Church into Being, right? This notion that we're creating something new apart from the original institution. So all these things together are what led to the factions that we now have in the Church. One faction being a paraconciliar faction that misrepresents the teachings of Vatican II, I'm not saying that they're doing that intentionally. I think many people who misrepresent Vatican II haven't actually read the documents. <laughs> so they're just sort of repeating what they hear people tell them about Vatican II, which is always dangerous. And then you have, on the traditionalist side, people who despise Vatican II because, in their opinion, they think that what the paraconciliarists are presenting is what Vatican II actually taught. 
So if you hear a, a paraconciliar theologian say, well, Vatican II says we really, you know, contraception's not a big deal. Well, a traditionalist hears that and says, you see, Vatican II. If it wasn't for Vatican II, we would have upheld the dignity of human sexuality. So there's all these conflations and confusions going on that could be solved just by going back to the primary text. Going back, for example, to Gaudium et Spes's chapter on marriage and the family, where it very clearly articulates the Church's teaching on human sexuality and the dignity of the body. You know, these are the things that could be, uh, I think, remedies to a lot of attentions and what I call artificial factions within the Church. Thank you so much for that explanation, Father Blake. That was amazing. You are listening to Inspired by Faith, the program of the Columbus Catholic Women's Conference. I'm Michelle Fanley, and I'm in the studio today with Emily Jaminette, and we are talking with Father Blake Britton about his book, Reclaiming Vatican II. Now, Father Blake, I um, love what you mentioned earlier about this talk about the politicalization of the Catholic Church. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from studying this your book is that you cover a lot of topics that are considered con- controversial, and you it's written that you wrote about them with an air of freedom, with the purpose to lay aside past decades of conflict and pick up the teaching of the council with humble heart. So I know I, you also wrote, you know, in the, in the book, I have got lots of lots of highlights and underlines in my <laughs> book um, that you wrote, if we are to reclaim Vatican II and continue striving toward authentic renewal, we must broaden our horizons and break out of the restrictive categories of liberal conservative, liberal and conservative. A lay person who likes the mass in Latin is not a conservative Catholic any more than a lay person who likes on eagle's wings, a liberal Catholic. They're both simply Catholics seeking Christ. So how do we, you know, get past this and move toward unity? Yes, great question. Uh, this is one of the primary objectives of the text. Number one, it's going to take humility. It is going to take humility. That is always the foundations of holiness. St. Francis de Sales speaks about this over and over again. Until we're humble enough to reopen the conversation, free of preconceived notions, or free from presupposition, and to say, okay, I'm going to approach this now, not necessarily attached to things that I prefer or I like, but I want to reattach myself to the Church, to what the Church asks of me. This is something very, very important. So I'll give a, I'll give a practical example of what I mean, uh, and I share this with people all the time. Now, there are various opinions of what people think, for example, about receiving communion on the tongue versus receiving communion on the hand. Now, we can give theological arguments for both. We can give a theological argument, let's say, for reception on the tongue as being a more proper disposition as respect to the Eucharist, etc., But the fact of the matter is that, magisterially speaking, in regards to the authority of the dispensation of the sacraments, that lies within the ordinary of the local diocese. Ergo, I may have my opinion on how people are to receive communion, but in the end, especially me as a priest, I took a vow of obedience to my ordinary. And so a humility is demanded of me not to, from the pulpit, try to promote my opinion of how I think this should be done, but to act in accord with the Church and what the Church has allowed within her proper authority. Put aside, of course, if there is explicit abuse or explicit evils being done, well then, I, of course, I'm supposed to speak out against it and be clear on that. But when it comes to something within the proper authority, and it's something I may not like or prefer, well, that demands a death to self. And I have to say, well, I, in the end, love obedience more than I love being right. St. Teresa of Avila says that. If you have a choice between being obedient and being right, choose obedience. Obedience always makes you holier. So the number one would be humility. We really have to be willing to talk to each other again. And, to, uh, and number two, presume that the person you're talking to 
is a good person. I do not sit down with someone who disagrees with me and think, well, obviously they disagree with me because they're evil and they want to destroy the church. Probably not. There are very few people like that in the church who are evil and want to destroy the church. I don't know if I've ever met someone like that. I've maybe met people that might be confused or might be hurt or might be wounded, but I've never met someone who is evil and wants to destroy the church. If, if they have an opinion about something, they really believe this is what's best for their faith and for the church. We have to understand that. We have to preach that, appreciate that in people's hearts. That's number two. And then number three, on a very practical level. So you have the humility, you have this openness towards the goodness of other people's hearts, and this desire to see where are you really coming from. You know, why do you love this about the church? Or have this opinion about the church? And then number three is, we have to educate ourselves. This is one of the biggest dangers right now, is that we have a lot of people very vehemently expressing their opinions without due information. So they're out there saying, oh my gosh, Vatican II is so awesome because it did this and this and this, when Vatican II didn't really do any of those things. <laughs> or on the other end, it's, wow, Vatican II is horrific and it's evil because it did this, this, and this, when Vatican II didn't do any of those things. And why are both people saying that? Because they heard it on a YouTube video, and they didn't actually read it in the documents themselves. So one of my main goals also is what can we do to educate the faithful? I would love it if this book led to thousands of Catholics, and it has so far, the, the, you know, the media reception that we've received, thank God, you know, letters and stuff like that. Now we have tens of thousands of people around the country reading firsthand resources of Vatican II. That was the vision of the Council. That's one of the main goals of this book, and I think that in itself will already bring a lot of healing. Wow, that's the, the, the big question of the day, Father, is where do we get Reclaiming Vatican II, and how can people stay in touch with the work you're doing. Fantastic interview. Thank you so much. Oh, it was an honor. My gosh, thank you. You're great, great interviewers. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you make it easy for me. Uh, so two things. One is you can get the book anywhere books are sold, but I would definitely prefer to get it either through Avamaria Press or Word on Fire Press. So um, you could also get it on Amazon if you need to. But um, so it's Reclaiming Vatican II, Father Blake Britton. You can follow me on Instagram and on Facebook as Father Blake Britton. But exciting news, there will be a new study guide for Reclaiming Vatican II coming out this fall. I um, actually have a sneak peek of it, Father, and we were using it, and it's amazing. <laughs> we're so grateful for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, that was something, thank God, again, in, in all humility, and I'm very humbled by it, that we received so many requests uh, to get that. I was like, okay, well, well you know, Ave was very they actually took the reins on. They're like, well, let's put this together. And um, I'm just very grateful for that. So I look forward to distributing that, you know, throughout the country, and hopefully more study groups such as your own will find that beneficial. And, and, and I'll just end with this. The main purpose of all the things I've said, it's never to criticize. It's never to divide. It's to highlight what criticizes and divides. And then it's always to encourage. We are blessed, actually, with a really amazing generation of Catholics. As I look between the baby boomers, the, the Gen Xers, the millennials, the, the Zoomers. As I look through all those things, I find a great generation of Catholics who are really seeking holiness. All we have to do is learn how to speak with one another, and we have to be founded on the tradition and the beauty of the Church. If that happens, we're going to see a resurgence of holiness throughout oh, the world. Thank you so much, Father, for joining us. We are so grateful for this interview. Well, thank you thank for you. God bless. Thank you. God bless. Thank you for joining us today on Inspired by Faith. We hope you are blessed and inspired by this episode. To find out more about the Columbus Catholic Women's Conference, visit columbuscatholicwomen.com. And to hear more about Emily and my work, be sure to check out inspirethefaith.com. <laughs>